This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, my name is Jordan Rich, and what an honor it is for me to work with Bill and his colleagues. Today we meet another outstanding colleague. Her name is Kristen Zeman, proud member of the law enforcement family, born and raised in Aurora, Illinois. Her father was a police officer, and she chose to follow in his footsteps. Kristen is now serving as a renowned leadership coach and is the author of a new book, Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership, and a New Way Forward in Policing. This is part one of a two-part podcast episode, and you'll hear us talk about Kristen's impressive background, cultural and social changes affecting police departments that she's endured over the last 30 years, and how police officers and heads of departments have had to navigate communication with much more care since the advent of social media and pseudo-journalism. We'll also touch on the pride that the vast majority of officers have doing the work they do for the public. Right now, I turn things over to Bill Powers with a more encompassing introduction of our wonderful guest. Bill? Our guest today, and one I'm very, very excited to have come on our show, is the former chief, retired chief from the Aurora, Illinois Police Department, Kristen Zeman. I've come to know Kristen over the last couple of years. We share an awful lot in common. She is going to be a spectacular guest. I think the best way I can put it, and I've probably said it before, in a court of law, you're only allowed to give expert testimony if you can show that you've got the experience and you have the education that supports all of that. And that's the only time a witness can give an opinion. Kristen meets and exceeds all three of the above and uh, is going to enlighten us to an awful lot of things today that I I know that uh, people will um, be educated to. And Mm -hmm. um, I know I say entertained. What we're going to talk about isn't particularly entertaining other than for her to be able to fill in, you know, how how her career has gone Mm -hmm. and what's come with it. So Kristen was the chief in Aurora, Illinois, but that wasn't something she was anointed to. She was born and brought up in Aurora the daughter of a uh, of a police officer from the Aurora Police Department uh, and someone that she certainly looked up to and as I did at a very early age decided what he does is what I want to do when I grow up and at the age of 19 right out of high school she became a cadet on the Aurora Police Department and worked her way through the years from cadet through the academy to patrol every rank on the department the first woman to ever have accomplished that uh, and in going through her years, went through every division on the department and uh, and learned everything from the ground up. Kind of like in business when you start out in the, uh, the mailroom, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So she's got, she's got them all covered. Y- to add to that, and Kristen, you can tell me whether you're like me in this, I didn't know how smart you had to be to be a police officer. In fact, I didn't think you had to be that smart at all. But judging by your resume, you went to, to college at Aurora University and then uh, on to a master's degree at Boston University, and along the way went to the FBI National Academy as I did. Of course, <laughs> I think you were 50 classes after me, uh, <laughs> and, and as well as the, the Senior Management Institute uh, with SMIP, the Harvard Kennedy School in, um, in Government Executive uh, class, and the Naval Postgraduate School. So I, I would say if we're going to talk about education and we're going to talk about experience, she's, she's kicked it. And as we go along today, we'll talk about the experience of it. Wow. I'm impressed. I'm sure our listeners are, too. Welcome, Kristen. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you both having me. You know, I just kind of gave a slight background to you. But when you were young and watched your dad and decided that's kind of what you wanted to do, what was it about your dad and what was it about policing that put you on a fast track onto the, uh, the department? Yeah, 
I can think of nothing else that I wanted to do, even as, as young as 12 years old, as I think is when I solidified my decision to enter law enforcement. And you're right, it was because uh, my father was a police officer. And uh, I always tell the story about the first time that uh, I was indoctrinated into uh, what first responders do. I was in the back of my uh, dad's station wagon, uh, the wood paneled station wagon, and uh, we were driving down the street. He was off duty and he, he pulled the car over really quick, threw it in park and said, stay here, don't move. And I pressed my face up against the window and I watched him uh, go up to uh, a crash car crash scene and he just started removing people uh with this strength that i had never seen removing people from the car and laying them you know out on the pavement and checking on them and the very same thing happened about two years later i knew the drill i was in the back seat of the car and he said stay here don't move only this time he was wrestling the keys from a drunk driver who had just crashed into a tollway booth and I remember the tollway worker uh, yelling, I'm calling the police. And I remember yelling back like rolling down the window manually and yelling back, my dad is the police. And it was in those moments that I took note of uh, something very important. Uh, that is all of the other cars just kept driving by. And I wondered, why did my dad stop? And that is what I would come to know uh, what separates first responders from the rest of the population is they run towards things that people run away from. So that. It was that early on that I thought this is what I want to do with my life. And I'm sure as your career went on, you did it many, many times. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Just a quick follow-up. What did your father think of you moving in that direction, following in his a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people would make the assumption that he probably wasn't happy about it, but I was uh, and I am an only child, and my dad wanted a boy so badly, and he got me. And so uh, beaming with pride when I told him I was going to follow in his footsteps. He has, uh, was always, uh, he's no longer with us, but he was always my, uh, my, one of my biggest supporters and uh, greatest cheerleaders, both he and my mom. So he was, he was very excited. I can tell you, and I know Kristen, I mentioned this before, and Jordan knows that my daughter is a police officer. And like your dad, um, I can't remember a more joyous moment than knowing that she wanted to follow in my footsteps because I followed in my father's footsteps. She has had a great career, and my my greatest dreams for her as a police officer have, have all come true. She's just spectacular. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a, people ask me all the time, Ray, would you want your children to go into law enforcement, especially at this you know day and age? And the answer is, is unequivocally yes. Mm -hmm. And when people ask about you know, recruitment. Gosh, it's so difficult to recruit police officers. And that's the truth right now. But I'll tell you what, the ones who are showing up uh, to take the, the police test and to join law enforcement, that tells me everything I need to know about them. Because even in these tumultuous times in law enforcement, there are still people so um, acclimated and you know drawn towards service. And so um, I'm actually pretty optimistic for the future of our profession. I was just having that discussion at work the other day. Um, we have an academy class that's about to begin, and uh, we were talking about, oh, when I came on, boy, back in the 70s, 17,000 people took the test, and this time it was closer to 6,000. Like, what's, what's happened? What's gone wrong? But part of the conversation boiled down to, but you know what? These 6,000 
are the cream of the crop. They're the ones that want the job. How many of the other ones, they shied away from it, so they really don't want to, to do this. So what we've got is a smaller group to pick from, but we have a better group in certain ways to pick from. We've got people that are absolutely committed to it. I, uh, I agree. I yeah. agree. And I think the pendulum is going to shift. You know, we're in the, and look at the history of law enforcement. We have peaks and valleys. And you know, and we had we had a pretty significant valley after you know the the murder of George Floyd, and you know where it seemed as though all police officers were painted with a broad brush. So uh, I'm I'm still optimistic, and I see the pendulum shifting. I think people realize that you know not not everyone uh, has tarnished our badge, and so I, I think we're we're coming back. Yeah, no, I do too. And I, one of the things I read in doing my due diligence on your background, you said it at, at some point in time. You came on during the Rodney King time. So you you came on during the difficult times when people were running away from law enforcement back then, and you retired after the Judge Floyd. It it would appear that, boy, it's been bad for the last 30-something years, but it's not. It's been fabulous up until— uh, what happened, you know, for George Floyd and post George Floyd, but yeah, and and I think that that's that's kind of that's how I you know frame my career is that it's two bookends. It's you know that one horrific incident in the '90s, and then I left my career with another horrific incident. And if you looked at just those two incidents, you would think that policing didn't get better over the years, didn't get more professional, mm-hmm. didn't get uh, more trained, and you know more equipment uh, to help them do their job. And that's kind of what I'm. You know, my rally cry is that I saw it get better with my own eyes. Here's a question for both of you. Start with you, Kristen. The impact of social media, I mean, it wasn't the case in the early 90s during the Rodney King case as much. There was television and 24-7 news, but take it to the George Floyd, and it's a magnified event, a world scale that we've never seen before because everyone was connecting on social, whether they were doing it for the right reasons or not. Any comment on that? Yeah, I, I think that just like uh, almost everything in life, you can look at the positives of something and then the nefarious side to it. You know, and, you know, if you, uh, it's deeper than social media, you know, it's now it's body cams, you know, it's cell phones with cameras, you know, and when I started in law enforcement and, you know, same with, with you, uh, it was, we, you know, we didn't have cameras, we didn't have body cams, there was, you know, no, there, there, people weren't videotaping the police. I don't think that's a bad thing for accountability. And then, you know, you add social media on top of it, and then that travels fast. But the problem with that is, is again, it's the broad brush. It's that, you know, we, we are judged by the transgressions of a few. So, you know, I think with uh, everything that is right with social media and how we can connect, you know, on another level and across the miles, I think there is absolutely a dark and nefarious side to it. And, you know, and that is just where it perpetuates the negativity. Bill, what do you think about where we are today and how it's changed? I agree with everything Kristen said. And one of the interesting parts about um, body cameras is now where our own social media. People that used to yell and scream and people that would take videos and then dice them up and, and uh, show you that 15-second clip and not the whole eight-minute clip, mm. are now we've got we've got evidence on the other side of it um, that we can stand by. So a bit, and, bit of an evening out of So it has been. We were going yeah. through a period of time with what they call First Amendment audits where people were, were walking up to us on, on motor vehicle stops, walking into police stations and barracks, filming everybody, telling them they had a right to be there, and on and on and on. It, it, they, and they do. 
And they do. And we had to be educated to that, that they have a right to do that. And the court has told us that. And that's fine. But now we also have the body cams and it shies them all away because they can't sell the, the story they want to sell because there's that other side of the story that was never being shown before. So Yeah, that's yeah. right. And it, I believe that it actually exonerates more police officers, minus the few headlines, of course, that we've seen uh, you know, as of late. But I think it, it exonerates more police officers than implicates them. Because when you look at the, you know, the entire incident and you know, just in a supervisory position in my police mm-hmm. department, there were a lot of uh, complaints that would come in on police officers, and I would go pull the squad cam, you know, and find out that's not exactly what yeah. happened. And so, you know, so I think it's accountability on both sides. So I would have to say, and, you know, I know I've talked to many union representatives for policing who say we, we are full, fully in support of cameras because they feel the same way, that when you can see the entire picture, you know, so that's, you're exactly right, Bill. And I'd say the exoneration level is over 95%. As you, Kristen, talking to other people, and it comes in, and you want to have the person come in with their lawyer and say, uh, why don't you watch this? Yeah, thanks. We're all set. Uh, Where's the door? Right. And that's what's happening. You know, there's a part of of us that it's a big change in putting on a body camera and and being, you know, what other profession do you ask people to walk around with a camera on to all of their conversations, all of their interactions with people? I'm not saying everybody loves it because it's kind of a burden to carry it. But as far as the results, they love it. You look at the national statistics about police quote-unquote brutality or shootings of unarmed citizens or whatever, the numbers are minuscule when you think about the number of interactions. But it must frustrate you both that media in general just doesn't even look at those numbers. And these are hard case numbers, FBI stats and so forth. Uh, It must drive you crazy. Your timing is uh, apropos. I just was actually visiting uh, a news station in South Florida this morning, and we were just having this very conversation. And uh, and you know their frustration is some you know sometimes law enforcement isn't as transparent. They have to fight for things, and we were kind of exchanging our frustrations. And I said, you know, what's frustrating for us is that you know out of eighteen thousand police departments across the nation and millions of positive contacts, you know, you never report on that. You know, and the good things. And which, you know, and I get it, you know, people don't tune in because there's great news, right? You know, but there's so many, uh, so many interactions and positive outcomes and acts of altruism all over the nation that are just not represented and not uh, showcased uh, in law enforcement. Absolutely. One of the things I've seen, and I'm, I'm now I'm probably going to be a little broad brush with the media, is they used to be relationships. You could count on one another for the sharing of what, you know, what limited information could be shared. And now what I'm seeing is the FOIA request, right? The Freedom of Information Act. And rather than come in and ask a question or talk, they just file a FOIA. I know the department I used to work for had to hire eight more lawyers just to handle all the FOIA requests. So there's no more of that. Then you give them that information, and then they write the article that they've already predestined the way that argument is going to turn out without having to talk to anybody at all. They're calling them data miners. It was a couple that I dealt with when I was in charge of the uh, media relations section. And uh, that's what they, oh, I'm not really a journalist. I'm a data miner. You send me all the information. I dig into it, and then I write an article. Well, where's the fairness in that? But but that's what's changed in journalism. It really has. I don't know what's being taught in school anymore, but I know I didn't minor in journalism, but I took a lot of writing courses in college. That wasn't what I was taught, not the way I was taught at all. Yeah, I I agree. Towards the end of my career, I noticed that there were 
journalists coming into the profession that that you're exactly right is just you know FOIA requests went up and I've always appreciated the very professional journalists I have great respect for those who are looking for uh, all sides of the story you know where you can really present a balanced story you know factual story you know and there's a then i feel like these are sometimes shortcuts when when you're exactly right data mining when you know have conversation with people and you can really you know uh, paint a picture you know of different sides and let your readers you know make make a determination but unfortunately it seems like those days uh you know are, are long gone yeah in fairness there are some that still are but they're notable because they stand out. I think as we talked about social media and generational changes, I think that's part of it. I and mean, people think they can find anything if they just Google it. And Wikipedia is is wonderful if you want to know the capital of a country, but I wouldn't trust it when dealing with an issue that's so critical, life and death, uh, police procedural issues. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you both make an excellent, as a representative of the media here, I can tell you I'm embarrassed that people don't do follow-up and check the sources and triple source before they uh, before they do write yeah. a story. I, I want to change gears just a little bit here. And Kristen, you and I have talked about it, and um, I stumble through trying to, to strike it the right way to, to bring it out, right? And that's woman in policing. And you are someone that, that is incredibly accomplished. But I'm sure that you weigh up the, the chain of command where you were, you were basically in uncharted waters. You needed to kind of have your left hand high at all times, right? And, and at the same time, develop a leadership style where people were going to follow you. Because as we know, you're not a leader if you don't have followers. If we can talk about this a little bit, I, I mentioned to you before that a couple of women officers that I know, the hair in the back of their neck goes up, which then makes mine go up when they're referred to as a woman police officer, a woman sergeant, a woman chief, or on the other hand, a minority lieutenant or a minority chief. You wouldn't say a white chief. You wouldn't say a white a white lieutenant. There's a, I don't want to say a stigma to it, but it comes across as, well, you know why that person is there because of this or for that, as opposed to giving you all the credit for all the crap you went through to reach the level that you reached. And I can talk about it, but you can, you lived it. So however you could add to this would be grateful. Yeah, and, you know, it's such an interesting juxtaposition because on one hand, I will say that I very much appreciate a light being shined into first. You know, I always say that, you know, first matter. Someone, you know, to break that, what, what we call the brass ceiling in law enforcement. So, on, on, and I used to shy away from that. Um, and so I absolutely acknowledge that there are a lot of times you know, we, we, if we look at our aspirations and we don't see ourselves represented, then we just don't have a clear path to get there. And I'll tell you, when I walked into my police department, there were, and we're a mid-sized agency where I retired from and spent my career, over 300 officers, and there was not one female uh, that was in rank when, when I started in 1991. And so for me, it never occurred to me that I would promote through the ranks. So I offer that as a perspective as well, because men, you know, you see representation and you see, you know, wow, I could be that, uh, you know, and, and you develop role models where when we walked in and I had amazing men as role models. But then I, to your point, it got to a, a place for me where it became uncomfortable. Uh, I became the first female lieutenant ever to reach that rank in the history of my police department. And I was very proud of attaining that rank. However, I got promoted 
with another individual that uh, a male who is also being promoted to the rank of lieutenant who is absolutely remarkable i placed him on a pedestal and you know the front page of the paper was first female lieutenant promoted and the same thing happened when i became a commander and then the same thing happened when i became uh, the chief and then i've been a finalist in several you know chief uh, searches and you know female candidate you know for for police chief and it gets a little tiring because it feels it sometimes it's this quote check a box thing and i reject that vehemently because my resume i will place it against anyone's and so you know i i I would love it if we could get to a place in time where it was just you know police chief candidate or police chief without you know having that you know distinction of being female but i guess it's because there's only 12 percent of females in our profession so you know because that's still such a, a minority that i i suppose and you know i'm surmising here that that's why it's it's newsworthy still but i'd love to get to a place in time where it's not you know pop culture references abound when you're talking about police, movies, books, etc. Seemingly the case where uh, a woman on a police department in charge, the guys in the detective squad are snickering. I mean, it's always this kind of cliche model. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, Kristen, and yours too, Bill, if that's just expanded and exaggerated for TV and film. And I'm sure you faced some issues along the way, but what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I, I do think that there is a stigma still. And I'll give you a, I'll give you an example that I'll give you two examples. One that happened to me throughout my entire career. Uh, if if you see me, if you know me, you know I am five foot four and one hundred and twenty five pounds. Uh, I am a very small stature. So throughout the years during, you know, when the time when I was in uniform and on patrol, I would get from various people that I would come in, in contact with. Do they let you ride in the squad car by yourself? Oh, do you, you have a man ride with you? And I would laugh it off and come up with some, you know, funny retort that, you know, well, I may look small, but, you know, I can take you down in 11 different ways, you know, and I would always just kind of add some humor. So it never really bothered me. But then fast forward to, and this is the stereotype that, you know, many men don't have to endure, but I was in the process for the Chicago police superintendent and one of the individuals who was sitting on the police board, uh, actually a female, which would just blew my mind, made the comment after my interview. She said, wow, you're so little and petite. I don't know how you're going to get these men to follow you uh, on the police department. And so that is a, a stigma and a stereotype that is often associated with competency. And uh, it's, it's still alive and well. But the beautiful part is that you succeeded the way that you did, and that makes you the role model for young women. And I think if you think about what the other interviewer said to you, it was like maybe she never took chances in her life because she didn't think that she would be, you know, well-regarded or what have you. You took them all on, kicked them to the curb or whatever the phrase is you want to use. But certainly um, you are a classic role model for young women these days that we're trying to attract into policing. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think that I think I'd here's where I'd love to to be. I would love to get to a place where uh, no matter what it is, what is our, you know, our gender, our orientation, our nationality is that let's look at our competencies. Let's look at, you know, the, the things that we've accomplished, our experience and all of that cumulatively and 
you know, and that's, I really think that when you look at competency and, and I think you had mentioned earlier, somehow when, when people say, well, we have to put a female in there or we have to, you know, add, you know, X, Y, Z, I believe it does take away. I don't, I don't ever want to be thought of being put in a position because I'm a female. You know, I would rather you talk about my competencies and, and my resume that, that earns me for the, the position, you know, versus anything else. And I, w- I would just love to get to that place in time. I, I did have a follow-up question for both of you as well. The desire to recruit police officers and the need to recruit police officers, Bill and Kristen, is is huge. Is there enough attention paid to others besides males in general? You know, is there an outreach to try to attract more women in general? Yeah, there's absolutely. I mean, there is a national movement called the 30 by 30, uh, where uh, you have to sign on to this movement as a police department and commit to uh, having 30 percent women by the year 2030. Um, You know, and that's all fine and good. But I actually prefer uh, that, you know, we we just look at those individuals out there doing the job. Here's a great example of, of recruitment videos is they often show the action in police work. So they show SWAT team kicking down doors, you know, and they show the chases when, you know, as we know that, you know, over 95% of police work, you know, is being a guardian of the community. It's community policing, it's problem solving, using your, your personality, you know, for the best possible outcome. And when you see everyone from all walks of life um, that that portray, uh, you know, policing in that manner, I think that's what makes people want to join the force. Or just think about if you've ever had an interaction with a police officer and if it was a positive one uh, where they influenced you and, you know, in some way and you say, wow, I, you know, I, I can really see myself doing that. So I personally think that recruitment happens with the boots on the street and every interaction that they have. Absolutely right. Because a, a lot of energy, a lot of resources and money are poured into you know, going to college fairs and, and uh, maybe going into some high schools and talking to people. And that's that's all good. It's important. But it's kind of like the difference between community policing and, and you know, and the, the ice cream truck, right? It's really about what we do every day, engaging with the community so that the kids growing up see the law enforcement officers in the community every day and say, that's who I want to be. Not because I want to fly the helicopter or I want to, you know, have a boat out in Boston Harbor, whatever the case may be, that they want to be police officers for the right reason. The reason you became one, the reason I became came on because I want to make a difference in people's lives. You know, when you talk to anybody, you know, that that applies to be a police officer, the first thing they'll say is, I want to make a difference in people's lives. I want to be that guy or that gal. Um, it's not about the uniform or all the, you know, the bells and whistles. Listen to something recently, the Pew Research um, that they did of people in, in what kind of professions they wanted to do. And one of the things that I thought was remarkable was in, in the percentages, the same amount of people say they want a job where they make a difference in people's lives. And yet, when you ask how many want to be police officers, that level is way down. We know that the people are out there that want to make a difference in others' lives. How do we get to those people and show them that law enforcement is a noble profession that we want them to be involved in and not think of, I don't know what their alternatives are if it wasn't, because for you and I, Kristen, it was always going to be law enforcement. I don't, I don't know what other things they think they can do, whether it's social work or what have you, but they're, they're still out there. We've just got to mine them. We've got to find them. Yeah, and I don't think we do a good job, whether it comes to recruitment or or marketing in general. Law enforcement notoriously has not done a great job of of viewing it as, uh, let's say, a, a you know 
public relations. You know, is that we just go out there, just the facts, man, we do our job. And you know that when you're drawn to uh, a public service as a first responder, the last thing that you want is um, is to be highlighted. And what I mean by that is I would give out attaboys um, in roll call. And I had a police officer walk up to me one day and he said, I would rather get an ass chewing than an attaboy in front of everyone. And I loved that because it really does encapsulate, you know, police officers and that we don't want to tout, you know, the good things we do. We just, we're there to do our job and we don't do it for accolades. We certainly don't do it for pay. And I think in that same vein, is it, it, that's what makes us not very good at marketing our profession. And what we have learned based on the earlier media conversation we have is that if we don't take charge of our own uh, public relation, our, our own marketing, then you know other people are going to do it for us. And that's why you see a lot of police departments who have hired professional you know, public information officers and marketing teams so that we can highlight the positives our profession in our profession. And I really think we need to do that more. I, I agree. One of the things that I see more and more as an impediment, and I want to be able to do exactly what you're saying, is we are employed by the city or the town or the state or the, the federal government, and mayors and governors and what, what have you will say, you don't talk to the press. That, everything gets filtered through us. Um, and so some of what we'd like to do maybe gets done, and a lot doesn't. And a lot, and, and again, I, you know, a, a broad brush, um, but I'm seeing it more and more over the last couple of years where police chiefs, um, colonels, what have you, want to speak up on particular incidents, and they're being told, no, we'll deal with that. You're right, Kristen, in that we've got to figure out a way to get through that, where a chief's got to say to the mayor or the or the the governor, whoever, no, you put me in this position. I need to defend what we did because we did nothing wrong. And and let's let's put it out there. That's right. And I, there there are two sides of that coin as well. You know, back in the day, and and you remember this, Bill, is that we when media would come knocking, uh, we were very comfortable saying no comment. You know, this is under investigation, and Loved we will it. not speak <laughs> to you. And exactly. And those days are long gone. So yep. even when a police officer perhaps doesn't, you know, act. In, in a way that is in alignment with the mission, you know, that we still have to stand up and say, listen, this was not the best of us. You know, that this officer's actions did not represent who we are, you know, in our integrity. And by the same token, you know, there's uh, there are things out there where we want to talk about, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we should be talking about. So it, it's a two-sided coin there. Our guest in this episode of Powers on Policing, Kristen Zeman. Her website, kristenzeman.com, is spelled K-R-I-S-T-E-N-Z-I-M-A-N. Her new book, Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership, and a New Way Forward in Policing. In the next episode of Powers on Policing, Bill and Kristen will talk about the importance of education in the life and career of any police officer, the qualities of effective leadership that Chief of Police Kristen Zeman exhibited, and the personal and professional challenges she faced during the COVID pandemic, a mass shooting in her community, one in which several of her officers were shot and wounded, and the spring and summer events of 2020, when the George Floyd incident resulted in riots, violence, and anti-police behavior. You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.